0: welcome to inside out nhs dentistry discussed a series of podcasts brought to you by practice plan that focus on the big issues changes and talking points within nhs dentistry and now here's your host
1: hello and uh welcome to this latest episode of inside out nhs dentistry discussed um that's our series of webinars where we look to explore issues that are facing nhs dentistry both now and potentially in the future. My name is Nigel Jones, I'm sales and Marketing Director of the Practice Plan Group and I'm very very pleased to be joined tonight by, by Ian Mills. Hello Ian. Good evening Nigel. Now I'm sure that most people, if not every person, tuning into this webinar will be um, familiar with you in your capacity as a Dean of the Faculty of General Dental Practice um they may be less familiar with other aspects of your um career such as the reason why you're sitting where you are at the moment so could you perhaps introduce yourself and explain a little bit more about uh, your role in practice
0: um okay thanks Nigel um well I, i'm, a, I'm a, a general dentist or so my background i suppose is is in general practice of primary care although the early part of my career Uh, It was very much focused on oral surgery, Um, so I spent four years full-time and another seven years part-time in in oral surgery. Um, I'm, despite the accent, I'm I'm based in North Devon, Um, I've worked in England all my practicing life. I set up a a squat uh, in 97 in a a town um, called Great Torrington in North Devon and um, it certainly wasn't by design, but it has gradually grown over the years, and it's now a, a, an A-surgery mixed NHS private practice. Uh, my own clinical work is limited to implant dentistry and has been for the last 12, 13 years. Um, and I work, um, when I'm not sitting at Zoom calls and meetings for the faculty, uh, I'm, um, I, I'm in, I work in practice. Um, I'm now a partner in the practice rather than a sole owner, I I also have a role um, at Peninsula Dental School, I was involved um, really from the outset with Peninsula Dental School and I have a a, a position there, I've been involved um, as a clinical supervisor, as a lecturer and various other roles, which has taken a wee bit of a backseat recently. I'm also involved in research, so I, I'm very much a jack of all trades. <laughs> Let's say I'm, I'm a generalist in an extreme. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Well, but I think that's really helpful for tonight's discussion because you'll probably have slightly different perspectives depending on which hat you decide to wear when answering um, some some of my questions. And uh, I, I think it's quite important to emphasise that fact that um, you're still in practice, you're still wet fingered, you're you're also subject to to some of the guidance and some of the rules that's affecting um, the profession uh, across, well, certainly England and across um, the wider UK. So I I was hoping that we could um, just explore what the latest situation with some of those um, issues affecting general practice um, are, for example, a really obvious place to start, which is fallow time and what what the latest thinking is around, around fallow time right now and also what might continue going forward.
0: Okay, well, I, I, I'll, early on in your, your question there, you said that I'm, I'm subjected to some of the regulations. I'm subjected to all of them. All of them, um, I, I, if only I could pick and choose. Um, <laughs> one of them, I guess, is, is follow time. And I, um, I was very fortunate to be part of the FGDP uh, COVID guidelines group, uh, and then subsequently part of the SDC rapid review. And um, at the outset, um, you know ventilation for instance wasn't being highlighted as a, a as a key mitigation factor but I think quite early on when SET became involved and then there was the SBAR report that came out that um, Professor Kath notes was very involved with and it became, um, it became abundantly clear that ventilation was going to be a, a bit of a game-changer and um, so in terms of our own practice we, we managed to get back um 8th of june to a very limited capacity only using i think two of our surgeries initially based on a one hour follow time and we continued with that until the rapid review came out and then uh, we, had, we had we were using air filtration units which we got very early on um and then we took made the decision based on the sdc rapid review we would invest in ventilation because we felt um and that wasn't just a short-term fix it was a short-term gain in terms of getting our air changes per hour in each surgery well over 10 which brought our fallow time down to 10 minutes which could primarily be accommodated within um, a routine restorative treatment appointment so it had less impact on the throughput of patients but also on um, the sort of health and well-being of the staff that they weren't um, they were spending less time perhaps all cooped up in ppe so so we took a decision to do that and we've now got each of our surgeries has now got ventilation systems in place and the reason we did that was not just a short term gain, but i think long term there's going to be a realization that ventilation is important beyond COVID. now uh, certainly the the information and advice that i'm getting through the sdsep ventilation subgroup is that there will be recommendations and guidance going forward that will encourage improved ventilation within dental practices now that my understanding is hdmo 301 which i don't think has been published as yet will primarily focus on new builds and not existing buildings but um i think there will be a a responsibility to look more critically at ventilation so follow time for us Um, is less of an issue than probably PPE is and social distancing in terms of staff comfort um, and patient throughput, and that massively impacts on capacity. So we're still, you know, we're working as well as we can, but we're still seeing a fraction of the patients we were before.
1: And I guess um, in, in private practice, that has a big impact. In NHS practice, very significant impact on on patient throughput which um, uh, I I guess will have some ramifications longer term and we'll we'll explore that um, a a little bit further on in this conversation and I should say to anyone watching the webinar that if you would like to pose any questions please feel free I'll try and weave them into the conversation with Ian but if I don't get to do that I'll try and ask them at the end if you have any that you particularly want me to cover off with him Um, but in terms of Sorry,
0: you say about the, the different ways that impact uh, fallow time has on private and NHS. And I think that's one of the areas that was maybe um, missed by um, NHS England or, or, or someone who were looking at targets. You know, in, in private practice, generally your throughput of patients is significantly less than it would be within the NHS. So if you have to extend treatment times Uh, It will have much less of an impact on the numbers of patients that you do that and there's more flexibility I think within private practice. I think that's why on on our private side we have managed to get back up closer to capacity than you would on an NHS practice that are doing 10 minute recalls or families you know, in a half-hour slot and, and and pushing them through a wee bit quicker. So I think that's one of the issues that have perhaps been overlooked by some in the differential between private practice and the NHS practice.
1: Yes, and and I, I might touch on that again in a sec, but since you've mentioned about the um, activity and the patient throughput, um, obviously one of the challenges facing NHS dentists at the moment are the targets, well this is in England at least, uh, the targets um, for 45% of Activity—a slightly broader definition of activity than normal, but nonetheless 45% um, activity—and and, and obviously um, the the faculty and the College of General Dentistry and the FDS came out with a statement in January about the the, the tension between safety versus activity. So so um, what what was the prompt behind the, the statement, and uh, wh- where are you at in your thinking of that now?
0: Well, I, I think we were just concerned about the, the timing of that. And I, I understand there is an issue around um, the timeliness of communications that come out of NHS England or the Office of the Chief Dental Officer, but there is a significant lag period. But I just felt, you know, we were just before Christmas, you know, we're, we're heading into a, another lockdown, a, a spike, you know, the third third spike, and then to suggest coming forward with a increasing activity perhaps at the risk of safety and that in North Devon where I'm based our prevalence rates are are, are low we don't have patients generally coming to visit us in public transport because we don't really have much public transport in rural North Devon so the the, the risks are less in my area than they would be perhaps in central London so I, I we had concerns that there was a, it was a fairly, fairly blunt tool that was being used. And I don't think there was sufficient reassurance that this was just a guide. And the big worry, I think, from GDPC and others, was the 36% um, sort of cliff base. And the impact that that could have on practices would be catastrophic. And there were other factors that were playing into this as well. Around um, you know, patient. Uh, sorry, staff or staff availability. So you know, we have you know over the whole period we have had two staff who have had COVID. You know, over the, over the the last um, the last nine months. Uh, but that has quite a knock-on effect, an impact on you know having to cancel patients. Uh, we've had you know parents who are having to stay at home because their kids are self-isolating lots of other factors around this so I, I we just felt it was an insensitive time to be bringing in that target although i don't think it was an unrealistic target but udas have never been an appropriate uh, way of, of of delivering oral health or measuring activity and it certainly wasn't an appropriate measure during a pandemic so i think that was the point that we were we were getting across
1: yes and, and i think um that will lend itself to a, a another question in a few minutes time around if not the uda then then what um but i, I just wanted to, to come back to um a point around that the, the sort of the challenges that the people are are facing at the moment and um sort of tie together a few strands of some of your answers there really which is um the, the, the 45% uh, activity target, I know it doesn't equate to seeing 45% of your patients, not quite that neatly, but it's it's interesting because um, I, you know, I've been working with dentists who've decided to um, uh, go private um, for three decades now, and generally speaking, they're not looking to increase their income, they're looking to halve the number of patients they see so they can provide more time and more care to the ones that remain on their list. And one of the things that we're picking up at the moment is actually quite a few um, dentists who are working towards the 45 percent are thinking, actually, I quite like this pace of work. And you you mentioned earlier about um, it being easier to accommodate some shifts in private practice compared to NHS practice. It it feels to me as if um, NHS dentists have been given a bit of an insight into what life as a private dentist will be like. And I, I just wonder what that will do for retention of NHS dentists um, longer term. And and the sort of part B to my very long question is you mentioned about the staff and PPE and things like that. Actually, retaining the practice team at the moment seems to be uh, quite a challenge for a number of practices. The appeal of being a dental nurse is is maybe not quite so great when you look at what they're having to wear in terms of PPE and actually what what they could get paid doing other jobs with no cpd requirements that kind of thing and without dental nurses you can't have a dentist that's practicing so so i just wonder what all of that means for workforce issues with the nhs
0: yeah i I think a number of points you make there uh, i I completely agree that, that there are real concerns going forward and um I, 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 I it's probably not the, 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 the book or the text you, you listeners might or um, viewers might expect me to um, to reference, but um, A Squash and a Squeeze by Julia Donaldson as a children's book is very interesting in terms of, it's, it's how you get used to the new normal and your perception of how things are when you start to either cramp a space or you actually take things out and you think, well, actually working back to seeing 15, 20 patients a day, rather than 30, 40 or more a day, um, how could you possibly go back to how you were before? And I think, as you say, it has given an insight into a different way of working. And I I hope um, NHS England and, and, and commissioners across the four home nations understand that what we've been delivering in the past wasn't the most effective way of delivering care. And we have to find a different model of being able to do that, to focus on prevention, to focus on quality, to give professional fulfillment, and do the best job that we can. And there's been a lot of talk about delivering change for, well, since it's review and before. But this is a fantastic opportunity in my mind. We've got a window of opportunity to grasp this and make the change. But if we don't do it soon, I fear that window of opportunity is, possibly going to close or it's going to reduce and i i also have concerns like you about the workforce because although there are great opportunities ahead about using the dental team and the fantastic skills that they are developing and within again my apologies if i'm talking about nhs england um, or, or the nhs dentistry in england but we have a contract that doesn't lend itself to utilize these skills it's actually in many ways it creates a barrier to using the enhanced skills of the dental team. Um, if you aren't professionally fulfilled, and you're working in a, a difficult environment with PPE, and the remuneration isn't what it might be, you are going to get frustrated, and you're going to go elsewhere or look at other opportunities. Uh, so that's a real fear within the dental team. Within dentists, per se, I think you know um, the, the demand and the need Is increasing despite the improvements in oral health i think over the short term the next few years there is going to be huge demand on our services and if we've got some dentists of a generation such as myself who are perhaps looking at you know, where am I, what am I going to be doing over the next five to 10 years? What's my exit plan? We're going to lose people from that end. And unless we are replacing them in significant numbers, there's, a, there's a, an issue with the capacity. Um, we, we've got Brexit thrown in, we've got concerns about the level of um, competence or confidence or the skills that the new dentists are, or the younger dentists are coming through. So there's a whole sort of heady mix of challenges or problems around that and it is good you know one of the positives is we are talking a lot of organizations have been brought together during COVID and by and large these organizations are collaborating we've all got a shared aim which is delivering the highest standards of oral health for our population sometimes we have um, a bias uh, or prejudice uh, as to how when we deliver that or what the best way of doing it is but COVID has uh, brought many of these organizations together and they are working um, reasonably well at the present time would be my assertion.
1: yeah I mean I th- that point about capacity I think is a really um, important one and uh, you know I, from my perspective I see um, supply of dentistry going down for all the reasons you've articulated I've seen um, demand from patients Seemingly going up. I mean, of course, there's some hesitance around um, what constitutes essential travel. Um, although I think there's quite a few patients, from what I can gather, talking to some of the practices we work with, who are viewing a trip to the dentist as a pleasant change and a good day out at the moment. So, so actually, there are um, there is increased demand, and definitely one of the things that we've spotted is our, our Medenta company, which is part of PPG, which is patient finance for treatment plans. is is being phenomenally successful at the moment. And I think a lot of that is driven by um, cosmetic dentistry, straighter, whiter teeth, demand, that kind of thing. So you end up in this situation where supply of dentistry is going down and demand for dentistry is going up, but that's creating its own pressure. And someone's commented in in the question box about, actually the pressure comes from uh, the inability to see all the patients that need to be seen rather than necessarily targets and i just i just wonder what what the future role for things like um, roles like therapists is in potentially helping with that capacity issue
0: uh, well i i we we're very fortunate in the practice that we have a, a dental therapist and um, she uh, Gemma, was uh, previously a nurse at the practice and went off to liverpool did her therapy training and has come back and joined us and uh, the there was a there has been an ongoing challenge about how best to utilise her skills within the, NA, the constraints of the NHS. We have made um, uh, some advances in that during COVID, and, and I think we, we are using her skills, utilising her skills more effectively now than we were 12, 14 months ago. I think there is scope, but you know, if you look at Imperial um, within the NHS, and I've had this um, conversation quite recently with Carol Reese is that the inflexibility of the NHS contract for somebody on periomaintenance maintenance is an absolute barrier to the highest standards of care if a patient needs period maintenance to be seen three monthly you either have to forego your claim within the NHS or the dentist has to construct a recall appointment to open a course of treatment at that three monthly visit or you have to explain to the patient we would have to do this out with the nhs so i you know there's, there's examples like that where we, we we need some radical change in the way that we are using our dental nurses our hygienists and our therapists and then that will develop in terms of the workforce but it's not the complete answer i still think because of the complexity of treatment and we we see you know, we've got huge demand at the practice louise who posted there i i know louise isn't far from me and, and and i i know that she's going to be under huge pressure with her practice to see the patients because and um, demand is massively outstripping capacity and we've got that within our practice as well and i'm sure it's been
1: replicated all over the country so so going back to one of your uh, your earlier points about the fact that we've got this window of opportunity now it, it it feels to me, although the, the profession is under pressure, actually it's in a position of some strength because of those supply and demand factors. So uh, how 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 do you think it should be influencing the future shape of, of NHS dentistry? You you've touched on the UDA being an ineffective measure, both in your statement and hinted at it so far this evening. But what, what do you think the answer is? Well,
0: I guess it depends how I'm looking at this. If I'm looking at this from a dentist and from the profession's point of view, um, you know, in some regards from a business perspective, when um, demand outstrips capacity, that's a very fortunate position to be in. But if I look at this from a patient's perspective, my greatest worry is that we had issues around access and oral health inequality before COVID, We've got a much bigger problem now, and you know all the indicators, so it's through Health Watch, um, you know, the various surveys that have con- conducted, the anecdotes that are coming through, the waiting lists in my area, and it all shows that the most disadvantaged in society are not being able to access the care that they need, and the preventative programs that you know are, are being put in place are not being resourced well enough, they're not being supported by general dental services when that patient then chooses to engage so we, we aren't doing a good job in delivering that on a public health a dental public health perspective so i think that is a real concern and you know one of the one of the my apologies if i'm repeating this and other people have heard before so we've got real problems with inequality i think we've got inequality within dentistry as well know within the dental workforce you know that's between those at the beginning of their profession and those at the end those who are associates and those who are practice owners we've got it the same between nhs and private and and so there are there are worries there about what we are doing within our own profession and the opportunities that we are affording them to do the best care or deliver the best care they possibly can because again if we're looking at the tension within the profession, it is about professional fulfilment. And it's about getting up in the morning and and, doing a job that you're proud of and you feel that you've actually made a difference. And the UDA has done its best to take that away from a large section, almost a generation of dentists, that they got up in the morning previously and a good day was delivering 25, 30, 40 UDAs it wasn't about improving oral health, it wasn't about getting little Johnny to sit in the dental chair for the first time or doing a beautiful crown or or helping an anxious patient. It was how many UDAs have you done? And that's a sad indictment on what we've allowed to happen to English dentistry over the last 15 years.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I... I... Inevitably, uh, um, you know, I'm speaking in my capacity as sales and marketing director of practice plan group, we do a lot of work with dentists that go private. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, I'm intensely proud of and I find the most rewarding aspect of what I do is, is actually helping um, dental practitioners fall back in love with dentistry. Um, because quite often they thought they'd fallen out of love with it and a lot of the time they'd fallen out of love with NHS dentistry and once, once they, they, they find a new home within private dentistry, you you can see it all coming back. And I I, I just last week saw photos of um, a practice that I visited two years ago, which was a, a tired, run-down looking practice run by a tired, run-down looking young dentist. Completely different place now. And I think that's you know, it's, it's it's vibrant. It looks so modern. He is so confident. It, it's a complete contrast. And I think, I think your point about inequality. I look at I look at just in him in the space of two years how much things have changed. And it's an indicator about how difficult I think it's going to be for the NHS to keep people um, motivated under the current system when they have got viable alternatives. I, also,
0: and and again. You know my apologies if i've said this before but with this window of opportunity i think um, you know within england and again my apologies if we're very english focused but and um, there was a significant amount of goodwill towards nhs dentistry over the first six months of the pandemic because there was a, a, a you know reasonably generous offer on the table we were supported by the nhs and that's what got our practice through because you know we have about 50 50 private nhs um, you know the planned patients that we that my colleagues have within the practice helped get them through the NHS helped get them through furlough helped get us through financially you know we're still in a, you know, a slightly more challenging financial position than we were 18 months ago but that there's a lot of goodwill towards the NHS and I just worry that if we don't grasp that opportunity and we come in with too heavy a stick in quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, that goodwill will quickly evaporate and this isn't about private being good and NHS being bad in terms of working environment. You know we've got a nice mix at our practice and I'm sure many others have as well and the the, the fulfillment we get from the community projects, from helping the people within our community, being the family dentist, you know a, a certain naive blind loyalty to the nhs uh, you know which is important to me and um, I, I, you know i think is really really important but i don't want to see a, you know a, a, an exodus from nhs dentistry i want to see young colleagues believing that there is a future for them as i did when i first qualified within the nhs and um, my my worry is that if this window starts to close there will be more than a trickle of people leaving the nhs
1: yes I, I and um our experience at the moment would suggest that trickles already started so um i i think something is needed the, the urgent transformation that joe churchill referred to in the parliamentary debate in january it's getting more urgent i think um but i i, I um maybe um slightly surprisingly um for for some people watching i i i share your concern i i don't I don't want the demise of the NHS. I think there needs to be a way of, of how the NHS and private industry can coexist for the benefit of society. And I, I am worried about um, the, the impact on society if, if um, NHS dentistry crumbles too much. Um, and particularly the potential for increasing oral health inequality seems, seems to be growing daily at the moment. And that, that, that really is worrying me. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure um, I, I, don't, I don't. Well, I'd be interested. What's your confidence that actually this opportunity will be grasped, and that urgent transformation will occur? I, I, I'm not confident that urgent
0: transformation will occur. I am confident that transformation will occur. But um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate in my role at the faculty that I'm invited to sit on various committees. And, and workshops, so I, you know, I see a lot of the discussions that are ongoing. They, they, it's, it's the the delay of actually translating these across into into practice. There's a lot of talk about flexible commissioning, and these are very exciting uh, opportunities about delivering preventative care to the most vulnerable in society. Fantastic, but we've at the same time we have to be, um, you know radically changing the gds contract down here um, uh, so i think that, that, that there are moves afoot and i think there will be improvements how quickly we can bring them online will be dependent on the appetite of the government to make brave decisions because we're not going to get significantly more funding within nhs dentistry i'm, I'm certain of it and um, so what do we do with that core funding that exists already And do we just spread it thinner and thinner, or do we actually decide we target resources? And in my view, and I'm I'm, I'm fairly simple in many regards, um, and I think that finite pot of money, we need to target it through a core service. Now, whether that's a core service in terms of the individuals who access, you know, universal treatment access, universal care, or whether it's you decide we limit that care to, you know, relief of pain, examinations, perio treatment, you know, to re- restore or reduce dental art, aspects like that. So I, I, I'm in, that would be my view, is that we need to recognize as finite resources, how do we use them most effectively to deal with the care that is needed at the present time, but also to implement a preventative program to make sure that the, the the significant improvements in oral health that have occurred over the last 40, 50 years continue. But there's a lot of complex dental care that's sitting in people my age and a bit older that's coming down the line, and we need a workforce to be able to deliver for that. And I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I'm going to be around for a bit longer and in need of that care, and there'll be many others like me
1: yes yes i i i think i think that it's it's really interesting um i can't remember which bda conference it was but i uh, seeing the presentation about how we've gone from a population pyramid to a population bell and heading towards a population barrel where there's as many people in the younger ages as there are at the, the other end of the scale and and i guess that's quite interesting in terms of the diversity of of needs that there'll be um, in In a population that's um that the demographics are like that and just going back to your point about um core service because I think the flexible commissioning one is interesting because i I felt for a while that that was you know very very um uh, in a very small way but edging us in the direction of a core service because it was taking um existing funding and targeting it to as you say vulnerable groups or children or care home residents or you know at, at, Adults that um uh, are drug abusers, that kind of thing, to see those sorts of little initiatives, it's sort of moving us towards um using that pot of money in a more targeted, targeted way. And uh, what what you, you just described, Ian, is is not out of step with um Professor Jimmy Steele's review and and mm-hmm. his his uh, his little pyramid actually of um of sort of declining priority for public spend. D- do you think? that there is is um, the appetite for something as radical as that
0: um, within which constituency within data, uh, patients or government
1: or? well i i might <laughs> um, I think that the the profession would would value greater clarity and transparency about what the NHs offer is, so a core service would at least play into that patients i think would benefit from understanding the decisions that they were they were making be more informed about choices so so i think my answer to your question about which constituency is governments and the nhs
0: now, I, I i i think that my understanding is that's where all where the, the 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 barrier has been or the the break has been and um you need that that's a brave decision to take you know effectively rationing care to a significant proportion of the population or it would be seen as that perceived as that but if ever there was a time to make courageous decisions surely it's got to be now and that i would have thought the majority of the population have a rough idea of what's coming down the line you know in terms of you know if we want to maintain a welfare state education health we're going to have to you know put our hand in our pocket so that you know taxis are going to go in, increase and um, or we're going to have to restrict what our public services are Um so I, I do think we have got a reasonably understanding population for a for a while yet until we're asked to go to the ballot box, perhaps. But I, and I, so if I was going to get out some bad news, if I was in government, I'd think, okay, in for a penny, in for a pound. This is where we we have some radical changes, some radical shake up. And I know I know the, the the office of the chief dental officer. I know, I know in England are pushing hard for that approach uh, it, it, not not necessarily a core service but they are pushing for radical change you know that we see what they've already done in wales um, you know they've already got significant changes going forward there. And that's something that we need to look at closely as you know, within England and also perhaps what we're doing in Scotland and Northern Ireland. We need to learn from each other and try and move things on because we, I think if we go back towards a UDA-based contract in England, even for a short period, I think it'll be detrimental to the profession and certainly detrimental to, uh, to our patients.
1: Yes, I I agree. And and I think um, I I should say that I think you're absolutely right to call out the fact that we're being quite English centric at the moment. And um, that definitely Northern Ireland has its challenges and Scotland has its challenges with NHS dentistry at the moment in in different ways. And what's happening in Wales with the the units of dental assessments and the ACORNS is is really interesting. And I think there, there is something, as you say, an awful lot to be learned from that. I think um, w- earlier on in our discussion, I mentioned about urgent transformation and you said um, transformation, but maybe not urgent. So what what sort of timescales would would you imagine might be realistic for us to at least get clarity, even if not implementation on what the future holds? Well, I, I, I would like urgent clarification
0: on quarter one, uh, which I think is, what, is it three it's weeks good. away. Or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think we'd be very I, I, and i i would imagine that there's going to be very little change between quarter four and quarter one i would have thought uh, and then we must be looking at quarter two three with some changes some tweaks but it, it, it in terms of the activity i don't think we will lose udas within the next 12 months completely. I, you know, I think that is still going to be used as some measure of activity, but it's how do you measure the rest of the activity? And <coughs> because sadly, you know, there are some people within dentistry who have um, taken the Michael, let's say, and a minority who have looked at 45% as a target. And, you know, I'm I made aware of postings on Facebook and other social media of people saying, I nailed my 45%. Uh, I'm looking for a locum to go and earn money elsewhere. And I think, is it any wonder that NHS England and the chief dental officer uh, uh, despair and they and the, you know the Department of Health then say, well, that's indicative of the of the lack of trust that we can place in the profession if they've got outliers behaving like this. But they are outliers. And we we need to construct some sort of um of of service delivery that we can deal with people like that but it doesn't drive the whole contract and I, I, my, my fear is that udas are very easy for commissioners to commission dental services and there there is probably when there's so many other things going on that would be the easy option would be to say we'll go back but we'll call it 70 percent and I just don't think, I think that will have unintended consequences for everyone involved. So, you know, to back to your question, what is, when will we see this? I think we will see some change, but it will be evolution rather than revolution. And if that evolution is not fast enough, I think there will be a bit of a drain.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... it's um... it's it's really quite difficult to predict at the moment because uh a a bit of me thinks we surely can't have the same contract in place in april 22 but in order to have a different contract in place in april 22 people need sufficient notice of that and then i think well actually that's that's quite a push to try and create something that's radically different and transformed in enough time to communicate to give enough notice um yeah and and the the big you know you think of the big drivers at the moment in terms of Uh,
0: Department of Health it'll be around NHS access because that's where the 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 post bag of the MPs are are, are getting filled by people not being able to get urgent care or being able to see a regular dentist and um, if we create urgent dental care slots um, to see some of the patients in pain we're taking away time from those who would have had regular care now that's fine if you push people from six months to nine months or 12 months if you're putting pushing people from 12 months to 24 or 36 months that's going to have an impact on oral health
1: Mm, and and i guess a very specific one within that is um uh, some of the stats you read about oral cancer and how much of that has gone undiagnosed during the course of the last 12 months and that that's quite a a worry for, for me and a lot of people i think yeah 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 no no absolutely absolutely it, it, Ian, we're we're sort of coming towards the end of our 45-minute slots, and as ever, it's it, it, it's flown by, and I, I I have this queue of questions to ask you, but knowing that I've only got five five minutes to go, I think what I'll say is um I, I I've lo- loved hearing your passion again. I mean, every time we speak, your your passion for dentistry just comes out so loud and so clear, and um. I, I know that we're approaching the end of your time as as dean, and um, and and you'll move on to different things and and pass that that baton on to Abby. But what when you look back on your your time as dean of the faculty, what what are you most proud of? <laughs>
0: um, I don't know, maintaining my sanity or whatever sanity I had before. It's it, it's been a you know in many regards it's been a challenging time for everyone within the profession, but I guess um, I'm very very fortunate in many many regards um you know in terms of uh, of choosing a profession that i'm I'm incredibly proud of to be to be part of uh, because that again that wasn't by design um, that was I stumbled into dentistry i've met the right people along the way uh, and that and the faculty of general dental practice has been a really important part of my my working life it's introduced me to um, you know various education programs the importance of lifelong learning and um, the, the, the importance of mentorship and some key role models throughout my career that have um, inspired me to try and be the, be the best that i can and that has that has continued right up you know, to to when I was elected as dean, the people within my within my board and and the staff within the faculty are inspirational individuals, and and they have, I was aware of that before COVID, but since COVID, you know, and I I I know from some of your previous interviews, you you and Eddie and Nish and others have talked about the way people have stepped up to the plate, and delivered way beyond, you know, what would be expected of any um reasonable individual in terms of their their time and um, their, their commitment uh you know supporting others and that you know around there's a couple of key initiatives i guess over the last um last year with the faculty have been directly involved and one is around um the covid guidelines that um that that we produced on the back of well that actually was in back in end of May, beginning of June, I think they published on the 1st of June, and um, I'm incredibly proud of what that group produced because I think there was a seminal shift and it, it, about, it, this is a risk-based approach, people were clamouring for an answer, and, and I, I think it's an understanding that there isn't one answer, it's not this sort of formulaic approach to everything we do, we need to understand the risks when there isn't the evidence base. Uh, you know within evidence-based practice when you don't have the research to underpin that you then have to rely to a certain extent on experience about interpretation of other data or research and make a reasonable um, risk-based decision and I, so I think that was something that I was I, I was particularly proud to be a, a small part of and then the other aspect was around um, the, the EDI um, agenda and that uh, again you know I, I a shout out to, to Onker denoya Dhanoya, um, one of my colleagues, um, currently Vice Dean of FGDP, who, um, you know, very early on had, had said, Look, we need to be standing up for this. We need to be saying something." So Ankur, Abby, Roshni, Susan, and many others have been involved in, and um, you know, the Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion agenda you know, NICMA um, and the CDO have done some great work, and of course the BDA, and that's brought people together. So I think, um, I don't know, if I've contributed a little bit of bringing people together, you know, that would be something I'm most proud of. But if I go away from the faculty, and I'll stop talking in a minute, um, I'm probably most proud of how the people I work with at my practice have reacted to this pandemic. And you know, this is replicated, across the country Um, you know practices like mine aren't unique right you know there's lots of you know i've got great people working in dentistry but and you know we my practice manager in particular tony batty who leads our team stepped up to the mark she worked the most ridiculous hours to get our sops together weekly newsletters lots of fun things to keep everybody engaged when we had some of our team on furlough and others were in fielding triaging and and calls or whatever. And I think that's what I'm most proud of, is being part of a team that's actually stepped up to the challenges of COVID. And that's what gives me um, reassurance or confidence that the profession will meet whatever challenge is thrown at them going forward. And if you'll forgive me, the College of General Dentistry moving forward will be a key aspect of that. And to link it back to my comments about inequality within the profession, one of the social determinants of oral health inequality is education. And I think that translates across the inequality within the dental profession, is that if you can get engaged or embrace education and upskill and maintain your passion and your enthusiasm and be the best dentist or dental nurse or therapist you can possibly be, that will serve you well for the future. And the College of General Dentistry is all about the dental team, it's all about fulfilling potential and setting standards that we can all aspire to deliver. So for me, that's why I'm so excited and so enthused about the College of General Dentistry, because I, I believe that is going to help our profession meet the challenges
1: ahead. I couldn't agree more with everything that I've learned about the the ambition and the aspiration of the college. I think it's it's such um, an exciting and important development for for general dentistry um, in the UK because I think I think that that kind of more structured approach to career development, having a, a true career pathway, I think is it, is going to be invaluable. I, I speak to a lot of younger dentists who are, are quite unclear about exactly what direction and route they want to go down and. I think to have a better framework, better support, better guidance, with with all of the initiatives that I hear um, that the college uh, uh, are working on at the moment, it, it, that sounds sounds very exciting.
0: I believe it is, and and it, um, I know Professor Mayor Wilson um, remarked repeatedly about the the how ridiculous it is that dentistry does not have a royal college when you consider all the other allied healthcare professions that have a royal college that takes a lead in setting standards in, in um, delivering high quality education and representing the um, you know the, the profession it's ridiculous that dentistry does not have a royal college we have dental faculties which do a fantastic job particularly for specialists um, but we need representation within general dental practice and the FGDP have done that extremely well for 28 years and, and we can all be very proud of what they've achieved but this is the next step on and um, we have got some fantastic people that are going to take this forward our next dean of my successor abby pal and um, who will be the first president of the college of general dentistry uh, is an outstanding individual he's got an excellent board round about him that will prepare uh, prepare the way for the future
1: Yes, I, I I had the pleasure of, um, uh, of meeting Abby um, last year and spending quite a bit of time in his company and he, he's a very inspirational guy. So uh, I, I think you're, you're passing that baton on to uh, a safe pair of hands for what's, I think, a very, very, very uh, important, if not vital, next step. Ian thank you so much I, as I say I, I could carry on chatting to you for ages and we've, we've already run a couple of minutes over time so no. that, thank you so much for, for your time this evening especially given that you've had a day in practice um, and it's really appreciated you extending your day to accommodate us so thank you thank you so much hopefully we can get to do this again at some point in the future but uh, no. Ian Mills, thank you very much indeed well thank you Nigel it's been my
0: pleasure